Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. everybody and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we're interviewing Dr. Stacy Pollock, a psychologist who specializes in infertility and perinatal loss. And for our listeners who are new to the show, for a small monthly contribution, you can get a PDF of our show notes and be notified of upcoming guests so that you can submit your questions by becoming a patron of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast by going to www.patreon.com WCH or you can find out more on our website at www www.womancenteredhealth.com. And now a message from our sponsors. Is your fertility practice educating patients through long consultations or multi-hour classes? Are you processing consent forms with paper? Meet Engaged MD, the informed consent solution for the modern fertility practice. Engaged MD's education programs are comprised of beautifully animated videos that guide patients through the complex decision-making process. Their fertility-specific consent solution eliminates the inefficiencies created by paper. The best part? Patients can access all of this on their own devices from the comfort of their home. For more information, visit EngagedMD.com. Perfect. Let's learn more about Dr. Pollock. So hi, Stacy. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. I'm so glad to be here. Great. So we like to give our listeners a brief background about our guests. So we would like you to talk a little bit about yourself. Could you please give our listeners some information about your background, your education and training, and your current practice setting, like where you practice and what types of patients you serve? Sure. My story begins in Michigan. I grew up just north of Detroit in a suburb of Detroit. I went to the University of Michigan for my undergraduate degree. I majored in psychology, and I really knew from my very first freshman abnormal psych class that I really loved psychology. I wanted to make that my career, and so completed my degree there in psychology, and then went down to Memphis, to the University of Memphis for graduate school. And my degree there was in uh, clinical psychology. And I chose clinical psychology because it had lots of opportunities for future options and career like research or teaching or therapy. And I've really found that the clinical work providing psychotherapy is really where my heart lies. After graduate school, I came to Iowa and did my clinical internship at the University Counseling Service at University of Iowa. And it was a wonderful experience here. And we've kind of been been here ever since. During my internship is when I started practicing in perinatal mental health care, working with mostly pregnant and postpartum women, and have been one of the founding members of the Women's Wellness and Counseling Service, which opened here at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in 2007. And we provide, our clinic is part of the psychiatry department, but we receive really the bulk, almost the majority of our referrals through obstetrics and gynecology programs, mostly here at the hospital. So we provide medication services as well as psychotherapy to mostly pregnant and postpartum women, but also infertility patients, some perimenopausal and menopausal women, women experiencing PMS and PMDD. So really any reproductive health care issues that women might experience are pretty much within our scope of care. So we've been here for about 11 years, and I've been the director now of this clinic for the past year. And in 2009, so not quite 10 years ago now, I started working with the infertility program here. There's a wonderful infertility program that is through the OB department, and they provide really excellent care for patients who are trying to have a baby and maybe having some trouble with that. So for the infertility program, I am their health psychologist. So I'm going to see any patients who might just be feeling 
stress as they go through the process of being diagnosed and treated for their infertility. I might provide psychotherapy to them. And then anybody who comes to the program here and is going to use third-party reproduction, so that would mean donor eggs or sperm or embryos or a gestational carrier, something like that, they are required to meet with me just to discuss some of the issues that they're going to have to deal with as they move forward with third-party reproduction. So thinking about disclosure to other people, talking to their child one day that they used a donor, those sorts of things. So it's really been a wonderful experience working with that department. So probably about a quarter of my work is for the infertility program, and I'm full-time here. And then about three quarters of my work is with the, just for OB, any any patients who come through, not necessarily fertility related, but somehow something related to their pregnancy or postpartum care or reproductive health care. I'll see women in that category. And I specialize in perinatal loss. So I see a lot of women and sometimes their partners come too. And we talk about things like their miscarriage, stillbirth, or babies, maybe fetuses not born yet who have been diagnosed with anomalies, all sorts of things like that. So it's really, it's a wonderful, I love my job very much. It's really a vital piece of my life. I totally enjoy, especially the clinical work is what I really, really enjoy. So that's sort of what I do and who I see and what my days are kind of like. So I just want to say something, give a shout out to Iowa, because if you are a listener and you listen to our first episode where Nicole and I talk about ourselves, you will know that we both went to University of Iowa. We've been trying to attempt a somewhat to diversify our guests, but Stacy is our first Iowa guest. We're very happy (laughs) to have you on to represent Iowa because it is amazing. And we will have more, of course, but um, we agree with you that the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics has a great infertility clinic and OBGYN department and know very many people who work there. So um, the next question that we like to ask our guests is what informs your perspective or your practice? So in other words, why do you do what you do? What is most valuable to you? Or what is your philosophy of practice? That's a really, really good question. And I think that what really makes me passionate about the work that I do is the relationships that I'm able to develop with people I work with, and also the relationships that I'm able to help them to develop or strengthen in their lives. The interpersonal connections that I think we have with other people can be our greatest source of strength. And it's just incredible to work with the women I work with and see the difficulties and challenges that they've experienced in their lives, especially infertility or perinatal loss can be so very traumatic and challenging, but they show such incredible resilience. And I really feel like I learn more from the patients and clients that I work with than they probably learn from me. It's wonderful, the strength that I get to witness. And Really, my philosophy, when I meet with someone for the first time, I may review chart notes or talk to other clinicians who have met with them to get an idea of what they might be bringing to the session with me. But I really feel that it's vital that as a clinician, I need to look at each person who comes to meet with me as a very unique individual who has a story to tell. And I'm lucky enough to get to be a person who listens to that story and tries to understand where they're coming from and to help them to go where they're needing to go. So I really feel that looking at each person like that in a very unique way, what their needs might be is vital. And that's what I tell people when they come in to see me. I tell them that I won't necessarily do therapy or work with them in a way that's similar to the last person or to the next person. It will be uniquely created to be hopefully as beneficial as it can be just for them. So that's that's kind of my philosophy. This is already a quick digression, but I feel like what you deal with is heavy stuff. I mean, to talk about perinatal loss and infertility, I mean, that's heavy and very 
private and intimate to that person. And so I just commend you for, I mean, I can already tell that you're very passionate about what you do, which I think is terrific. But I guess on on a, the other end, how do you manage that heaviness? How do you work with work through that even just on like a personal level hearing that day in and day out? That's a really good question. I think it's it can be some days are more difficult than others. I think it's inspiring to me to see the, like I said, the strength and resilience that all of us show in the face of great challenges. And I see that every day that creates hope in me. And I hope that that hope then kind of is also displayed to the people I work with and can help them to feel some sense of, you know, hope that the future will look better. It can be very, very challenging work, but also really, really rewarding work. Like I said, I really learn a lot from the people that I meet with. And it's amazing how sometimes their perspective on things like I can make it through this. This is something that I never expected or never would have imagined could be, but I, you know, I'm going to marshal my resources and make it through this. And so that that's inspiring to me. So that helps me on the, on the hard days, plus probably a glass of wine too. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Yep. All right. So like we said, in this episode, we're going to discuss infertility counseling and perinatal loss. So let's just jump right in. So you gave us a brief background about what you do, but could you give us a little bit more detail about your work? As I'm sure a lot of our listeners do not work closely with a health psychologist. So what is an average day like for you? As a health psychologist, what's different about that work than just when I'm providing just more psychotherapy services, a health psychologist is going to be someone who works with a patient who's not necessarily presenting with mental health concerns, but with medical issues that may be impacting their mental health functioning. So it's a little bit different. And so in this case, so for the infertility program, the medical aspects are the infertility or the infertility diagnoses. So what happens is the people who get referred to me through that program may not be presenting with mental health issues per se, but they are probably experiencing notable stress, stress financially, stress in relationships, stress in self-identity, those sorts of things. So those might be the things we look at. So the focus is a little bit different. That doesn't mean that the work I do is that much different. It's just a slightly different angle that the story begins with. So most of my days, I would say, are really, I'm providing some form of psychotherapy. It just sometimes looks a little bit different depending on what the presenting concern is. So Okay. So it sounds like by the time someone is sitting and talking with you, they've already been diagnosed with infertility. However, a lot of our providers are going to be the first provider a person goes to with fertility concerns and will often not end up treating them. So how would you suggest that conversation go? That is, if I were a provider who suspects that my patient has fertility, how would I discuss that with them? Well, I think that it's important to really meet the person where they are. Some people may have more understanding of the terminology or medical concerns, kind of understand some of the lingo, and other people will not. I think the main kind of focus as you're listening is being very compassionate, listening to what the patient is saying, understanding that there's going to be unique circumstances for each person you deal with. So when I meet with all the people I meet with in a day, and many of them might be dealing with infertility. So I have my own understanding of it, my own knowledge, and it actually feels fairly common because I'm meeting with multiple people who are dealing with maybe similar issues. For the individual themselves, the individual patient or client, it's very unique. They don't have that same perspective. They are actually experiencing the issues and trying to make sense of the diagnoses and the possible treatment options. And so they're coming from a, a much different 
perspective and angle that we do have to be aware of. And just giving people time to process the information that we provide to them or the suggestions that we give. I will often say at the end of a session, you know, if you want to meet again to talk again, let me know. But if you kind of want to just take some time to think about what we said today and decide how you want to move forward, that is helpful as well um, to kind of give them the time to think about that. And something else that providers need to think about as they're working with patients, especially those who maybe are just learning that they are diagnosed with infertility issues, is that there's going to be negative feelings. That's completely normal. Not to get too worried when people feel anxious or sad or really angry or don't understand kind of what's going on. It's definitely not out of the ordinary to have those feelings be expressed. It can be frightening for the provider to try to understand that or feel like they need to come up with a solution for the person, but often there is no solution right away anyway. So maybe to get a little more into this, then like what tips would you give clinicians for telling a person, like kind of breaking that news to them Mm. with infertility specifically? Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, I would check in with the patient as they're sort of describing the diagnoses or describing kind of what's going on in the person's body or what the treatments might be. Just really kind of check in to see if it's the information is being understood and there have questions maybe along the way to ask about it, kind of inquiring whether the patient does have questions or concerns. Again, I think really listening is really important and just showing compassion about the situation, that this is something that is life, very likely life-changing for the individual. It changes the way they may think about themselves, their identity, perhaps their marriage or their partnership, their relationship with family and friends, possibly their career, their financial situation. So the diagnoses have far-reaching implications that person is in the moment, all these things are sort of flashing through their head. And it's very difficult, probably even for them to articulate some of their fears and concerns. So I like to tell people too, when I meet with them, sometimes I meet with patients before they meet with the medical team. And so I'll ask them, do you know if you have any infertility issues? Do you know if there's been anything out of the ordinary in terms of your reproductive health? So we'll talk about that a little bit. And they may be concerned, like, what will happen if I do go to this next appointment and the doctor says there's something wrong? I like to tell them we have really good providers. We have a really good team of people who are going to be there for you, who have seen lots and lots of different sorts of people with lots of different diagnoses and situations. And they're going to come up with an individualized plan for you that will hopefully get you to the end result that you're looking for, probably a baby. So instilling hope is really important too, especially when you're giving difficult or challenging information to kind of give this idea that this isn't the end point. Your diagnosis isn't the end point. You will look at options that will help you. So I think that that is helpful as well. So kind of to get more into the weeds a little bit, I just want to bring up a personal issue that I have as a provider. So I work with a lot of patients going through fertility treatments, and I also have in my previous job. And mostly in my roles, I've cared for them over the telephone. So a common theme among my patients is that many are constantly looking for reasons for their infertility or a cure. And a lot of the times, like you know, there's not going to be a clear reason or a clear cut cure, so to speak. So they spend a lot of time looking online for answers. And these answers might not be really rooted in evidence. And you know, the references aren't great. So some individuals be very consumed, anxious with their fertility and are looking for these resources to sort of give them answers. So do you find there's a way to help women or couples avoid sort of going down these rabbit holes and bring them a little bit more peace with this diagnosis and treatment plan? Yes, I think that it's a really common drive to look for rational 
answers to questions, to look for logic, and to prefer orderliness, linear thought. So when we're confronted with something that doesn't make sense or that's new, we haven't encountered before. I do this myself. The first inclination is to try and make sense of it, to understand it, to make it something that we can deal with rather than an unknown. So when, like I said, I do that myself, if something comes up that I don't understand, my first thing is to research it, ask questions, try and come up with something that fits into my own schema that makes sense to me. So when patients do that with infertility, kind of looking for answers or or any form of loss, looking for answers, I understand that inclination and it it makes sense to me. What happens is a lot of times, most, I'm trying to think, I think the statistic is at least a third or more of infertility cases in those cases the diagnosis is, it's unexplained infertility. There's no actual thing that's wrong that can be pinpointed to. And frequently, it's a combination of factors between the male and the female. So there's not sort of one person or one thing or one body part or diagnosis that even can be pointed to. So answers, often they can't be found. And sometimes, even when they are found, does it really change anything? Does it really really bring that expected sense of satisfaction. I think that you can struggle to find that answer for a really long time. And then when you actually, if you do find it, it really doesn't necessarily change that much more. So we'll talk about energy, energy spent and energy taken in. And so going through difficult circumstances, medical circumstances like infertility, it causes you to spend a lot of energy trying to cope with it, think about it, could even be actual energy spent with financial planning, things like that. So I will ask people, the energy spent seeking the answers, is that energy well spent or could it be spent in some other way that might be more positive and more fulfilling? I mean, this sort of stuff wears a person out. It really does. Trying to figure out what am I going to do? This is not what I expected. And how am I going to cope with it? And taking more energy to try and come up with answers that may not even be there is probably not a good expenditure of resources. So that's sort of what I encourage women to think about. Let's ask your physician questions, get some information, but also learn to be comfortable with the fact that there might not be the answers that you're looking for. Along the lines of information seeking, there's definitely a lot of information out there that isn't helpful, that isn't productive. It's sort of buyer beware when you're looking on the internet and looking things up. But when you're anxious and when you don't know really what you're looking for, you can kind of look up things that only increase your anxiety and your sense of concern. So when people do really want to gather more information, my first suggestion is go to your clinician or your physician or your medical team, or even just a a doctor or a nurse or whomever that who you trust to help you understand the information. And then I try and steer them toward maybe more positive books or websites that might have legitimate information that can help them to understand. And what are those books or websites? So the American Society for Reproductive Medicine is ASRM. It's a essentially a professional organization. It's sort of like the American Medical Association is for just general doctors. The ASRM is sort of the professional organization for anybody working in the field of reproductive medicine and fertility care. So ASRM has a wonderful website that is helpful both for clinicians like me and also for patients. It has a actually like a patient portal that's designed especially for patients. So the information in there is not going to be too technical or just over the top. It's going to be really helpful stuff. They have fact sheets for patients on a variety of topics that you can print out if you want to. There are enough statistics and information so you can get sort of numbers and answers like that too. And there's also a mental health professional group within ASRM. So for people like me, clinicians like me, so if there's other people out there who 
are a clinician or want to be a clinician working in the mental health area in infertility, that's a wonderful group to join within ASRM, but it's also patients can also visit that site as well. And so that MHPG, Mental Health Professional Group area of the ASRM website has specific material related to mental health concerns. Beyond ASRM, Resolve is sort of more of a grassroots infertility, like peer-led or peer-support infertility website. They do wonderful programs throughout the year. National Infertility Awareness Week is, I believe it's always in April. It's a week in April every year. And Resolve is sort of the agency behind that, that runs that. Lots of wonderful activities. So Resolve is a great, great option as a website for people. Another one I like is called Path to Parenthood. So it's like Path and then the number two parenthood altogether. And I like to hand out resources like articles to people I meet with. I put together a packet of info when I meet with patients and I almost always get them from Path to Parenthood. They have a library of articles. It's amazing. Like there's one I just pulled out the other day and it's, I think it's titled Help. My friend is experiencing infertility. What do I say to them? Kind of something like that. So really neat articles that patients can really benefit from. And then I can tell you later too, as well, a couple of good books that clinicians might find helpful for infertility counseling as well. I think that would be helpful. I never really thought about it in terms of talking with a patient about energy spent and if that's something that they choose to do. And so redirecting them, I think, is a great option to some better areas. I think that a lot of people in the age of the internet, or I'm not exactly sure, but there's a lot of yeah junk out there that it's hard for people to decipher what's grounded in research or what's anecdotal. So absolutely. Thanks would be helpful to me personally. So thank you. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to build on this energy thing. So I know when we previously talked on the phone, you had mentioned that within fertility counseling or infertility counseling, you try and find positivity. Can you talk more about this? Sure. So I think that with infertility, and this is really going to be true with anything, but when I work with people with infertility, it's sort of like the person's focus starts narrowing completely down into their infertility diagnoses and the medical care they're going to receive and how are we going to pay for this and should we tell people. It focuses right in on all these very stressful variables. And so infertility starts to eclipse everything else in the person's world. It's taken over and it's blocked out all the other things that are important to them. So, you know, one of the things I'll say to people, especially when I say see couples, is I'll say, so what actually got you interested in having a baby in the first place? And they'll say something like, well, we loved each other and we wanted to create a family together sort of as a continuance of our marriage or our partnership with each other. So I'll say, well, how much time have you been spending lately focusing just on the two of you? Apart from doing ovulation predictor kits and taking shots and timed intercourse and those non-fun things, but what sorts of fun things have you done with each other? How have you refreshed and strengthened your relationship? Because that's really the vital component that probably got, you know, got them interested in having a baby in the first place. And it's true with other parts of a person's life too, not only their relationship, which I think is probably the most important, but also other relationships with other people. So if I see a person who's going to be a single parent, it might be their relationships with others, their family and their friends sort of get left by the wayside as they're trying to have a child. Sometimes career, the things that are passionate about and excited about, the things that make their lives meaningful, again, are being eclipsed by infertility, which is stressful. So all these good, wonderful things that usually are there to sustain them and keep them going on the hardest days are sort of like pushed off to the side. So I try and remind them about those things. I'll ask them, what are the other things that you find meaningful in your life? What are the things that are important to you? When you have free time, what do you do? What are the things that cheer you up or that you look forward to doing in your future beyond having building your family? What are the other things that are still there 
or are still vital components of your life. They're just sort of forgotten as you're trying to focus on this. So that can sort of draw positivity back into a person's life to remember that, yes, this is a large puzzle with lots of different pieces. And I don't know yet how these infertility, what's going to fit in these blank spots here with my fertility and family building, but all these other pieces in the puzzle are still there and they're really important and they're creating this beautiful kind of picture of what my life is for me. That's beautiful. That is. Yeah. Oh, thanks. I like that too. <laughs> and again, it goes back to that energy mm-hmm. spent. Do you want to spend time on the internet? Do you want to spend time with your partner or your friend or, you know, spending your energy there? Right and making those positive connections. Yes. I think that's a great point. So if we could switch gears a little bit and talk about your work with women who have experienced miscarriage. Miscarriage is something that we have hit on a few times throughout the show in a variety of topics. And through our market research with women, it is something that we noticed that women commented that their provider was either really good at talking with her about it or almost made it worse in some ways. So from your perspective, what is the best way for providers to discuss miscarriage with their patients? I'll share just kind of a story from quite a few years ago. I did a training with the OBGYN department here at the hospital. So myself and one of the palliative care nurses did the training. And so it was a training to help these care providers who work with women who experience perinatal losses to help them to be better care providers for women who are having these experiences. And so what I really learned from this is that these are really awesome care providers. These were mostly physicians, but some nurses and residents and fellows. But because they are coming from a medical perspective and they see so many cases every day, probably, that involve some form of loss or difficulty or challenge, you can become sort of numb to it or just a bit more business as usual. Like this is sort of, I see so many of these situations that it starts to lose the, I don't know, the depth of feeling that that you might, that were only a, a, an occasional circumstance that you might experience. So it's not for lack of care. These are great, great providers who provide really excellent care, but it's sort of like they see so much of it that it is something that's not out of the ordinary anymore. So we talked about, you know, in the training about really trying to see through the eyes of the patient that you're dealing with. And again, each one being an individual who has a life that's very different from the next. Who knows what the resources are that that individual might possess or the traumas they've already experienced or the life they've already lived. You just don't know what that is. So to suppose that each situation is similar is probably going to be incorrect. So it's really a situation where you have to honor each individual and listen to their story and know that people grieve in really different ways. I work with a lot of grieving people and the one of the things they'll ask me is, well, so is it right to feel like this or is it wrong? Or they want a timeline of how long will it take before I'll feel better? And I really wish I could give them answers to those questions, but I'll say, you know what? There's no good answers. So there's very much variability in all those things. And so providers who are talking with patients who are experiencing miscarriage or some form of perinatal loss, my best advice is to really just ask questions, listen and kind of take it from there. Really look to see what that individual is experiencing. Some people will think, well, if that was a pregnancy that was only a few weeks in duration, it can't be that bad. I guess if it were a baby that were stillborn, you know, 20 weeks or more gestation, or maybe born and then passed away after it was born, that's going to be different. But that's not necessarily the case. You will have women who will have named their child before it was even conceived and planned a life for that child. So even if it passed away at just a few weeks gestation, it was still a child to them. So you can't make any sort of assumptions about, oh, this must not be as bad as that, or this will be similar to this other. It's really going to be unique to the, the patient you're dealing with. So, which makes it challenging for providers, but yet 
to provide the best care, you do have to try to take that time to understand the individual. So if we're going to, I mean, I know you said you can't really template this for each person, but just kind of give some more concrete advice. You had mentioned, oh, you know, ask questions, have compassion. Like what questions should a provider ask or do they just say, you know, that was a miscarriage? What's kind of the next follow-up or the next question or Well, you might ask something just as simple as, how are you feeling? What are you thinking now? It it comes down to having time, too. It's hard sometimes to find the time to really ask some of these questions. I'm lucky because I usually get an hour at least with people to kind of talk about these things. And so I don't want to make light of the fact that it's hard sometimes to find the time to do these. But sometimes just a simple question like, how are you feeling? or what are you thinking can be all it takes for a woman to share with you what it is she's experiencing. And sometimes it's surprising. Again, we'll talk about maybe women who have had just a very brief pregnancy experience with the loss that have very, very deep feelings. And on the converse side of that, there may be women who have had much longer pregnancy or more difficult loss, in our opinion, who is coping very differently, who thinks about it in a very different way and puts it in a very different perspective. So we think, boy, they don't seem to be that distressed at all. It's, again, as a provider, we have to just take them wherever they are coming from to not make an assumption, but to just to ask kind of, how are you feeling? And really to listen. I mean, I think sometimes to that It's very difficult to any sort of grief situation, whether you're a provider working with a patient or you are just a person talking to a friend or a relative about a loss. We want to jump in and say everything's going to be okay. You're going to get through this. This isn't as big a deal as you think. It's going to be fine. You'll have another baby. You will heal. I mean, some of these things are probably hopefully true, but probably not the best thing to say in the moment when somebody is grieving. And I mean, I have that inclination myself. I mean, I see people all the time who are grieving, but having gone through loss myself, I know that those sorts of platitudes and sort of empty reassurances don't help and they can actually cause more damage. And one of the things too, I I just met with someone the other day and she was describing a situation. She had a loss. This was been several months ago now. And she said, you know, people don't ask me anymore. They assume that I'm okay. They assume that life is back to normal, that I feel fine because I look okay on the outside and I go to work and I do the things I'm supposed to do and I pay my bills and I smile. I look like my normal self. So people are not asking me. And she said, I just wish someone would ask me how I'm doing because it would open the door and I could say, I'm still sad some days. I still think about the baby I lost. Providers can do that too. As friends and as family members, I think that's definitely our responsibility. But as providers, I think that's important too, to not forget. And if someone is done grieving or doesn't need to talk about it, they'll let you know. They'll say, I'm doing okay. I think we don't want to open up wounds or doors that don't need to be open. But the reality is, is most people who have experienced these losses are grateful that they might get the chance to share some of those feelings, even weeks, months, years later. So I think that's really important for providers to know, too, that it's never a bad thing to say, I know you've experienced this loss in your past, and it could be a past that was quite a few years ago even, but to say, is that anything that is still something you think about now as you're pregnant again, or as you're trying to get pregnant again, or whatever it might be, I never think that that's going to be a problem. And from all the patients I talk with, I think they would agree. I love that. So before we get into the friend perspective, I just want to ask one more question with like the provider perspective. Uh We have had a few providers who have mentioned the idea of normalizing it. Like you said, you know, this happens. These are the statistics. I want to say it's something like one in four pregnancies and in miscarriage. So they really try and put this lens of normalcy around it. And I'm uh-huh. just wondering, like from your professional opinion, what's your perspective on creating a normalcy about it? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think that, I mean, when I look back on 
even when I started kind of in this field, so maybe like 20 years ago or something like that, a lot of the things we're talking about today in this program weren't really talked about in professional kind of circles as even or just in life, just among people that were sort of a little bit taboo, a little bit secretive, don't want to bum other people out. It didn't, maybe it felt like, well, this is only me. Nobody else feels this way. All sort of detrimental kind of ways of thinking that created more challenges, I think, for women and for couples going through these sorts of experiences. So since that time, I think we've become a society that is more open to talking about these sorts of issues. There's been different books that have been published. Some celebrities have come out with their stories of postpartum depression or loss or the challenges they've gone through with trying to have a baby and using IVF, which has made other people think, oh, if they could do that or they experience that, I that doesn't make me so different. I think those are all really important things. So when I have women and couples who will come in and say, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm experiencing, and I will do really spend a lot of time saying, there is nothing wrong with you for feeling like that. That is not out of the ordinary because they're sort of asking, like, I probably shouldn't feel this bad or I shouldn't feel this bad this long after or maybe I shouldn't feel this good. All these sorts of expectations that we have of ourselves really get in the way of healing. So that's one of the things I'll really explore with people are what are the expectations that you have? What are the expectations that others have that society has about these things that you're experiencing? And let's maybe try and turn that around so that your expectations are more realistic and reasonable and your feelings are normalized in that other people are probably feeling very, very similar ways to you. And that can come too from looking at online support groups, going to support groups, reading some of those resources that might be out there that are written by people or blogs or whatever written by people who have experienced similar things. And it's so affirming to think in your head, so I'm not crazy for feeling like that. I am not the only person who has had that thought. Because people will come in and say, I am angry. I see other people having babies so easily and keeping those babies, and it doesn't even look like they're taking good care of them, or they don't seem to appreciate the gift that they've been given, and it makes me angry. And they feel guilty then for feeling angry about that. And I will say, you can feel whatever you feel, whatever you're feeling is appropriate. And to first of all, have that affirmed, but then also know that other people feel similarly. It's a huge weight that gets removed, I think. So that was long winded, but. (laughs) So overall though, you feel like that approach isn't a bad approach. To normalize some of those feelings? No, I don't think so at all. I think it's actually really important because most people do feel alone. I said to someone the other day, you're not going to get a t-shirt that says on it, I just lost a baby. So nobody is talking about it as much or putting it out there. And so you feel like you're maybe abnormal or there's something wrong or the experience itself isn't happening as much as you think. I mean, the reality is when we look at miscarriage, when we count like pregnancies that aren't actually clinically diagnosed, it's probably close to 50% of pregnancies are ending in miscarriage. Some of those are women that don't even know that they were pregnant or it wasn't confirmed by a clinical test. So it's a lot. It's really, really super common. And you'll have women who will decide that they want to share their loss experience So they'll put it on Facebook or they'll share with somebody in some way. And they're astounded by the number of people who will speak up and say, I experienced something similar, or I had that feeling too, or who just want to be there to support that person who's going through that struggle. So it's incredible when we're able to tell someone you are not alone. Your feelings are not different from other people. Your experience is something that others have experienced. That's very affirming, I think. 
So first of all, I've also heard a lot of providers say this to women when they have a miscarriage. And maybe this woman was experiencing infertility or difficulties conceiving. They'll say to women who have miscarriage, well, at least this means that you can get pregnant. And so could you kind of walk through maybe how to either talk about that differently or advice for providers who sometimes say that to women? Sure. I think sometimes... While that's probably a true statement, and in the provider's mind, that is a good thing, it can be perceived by the patient as sort of minimizing the loss. It's like saying, well, this isn't so bad because see, you can do it again. It's sort of like when I talked about the platitudes, like you'll have another baby or there must have been a plan because there must have been something wrong with this one. And that's why it didn't move forward in terms of becoming a delivery or whatever. I think that there's a better way to talk with someone about the fact that there could be a silver lining or something to this situation. Again, it's an inclination to want to jump to, well, this isn't so bad, or don't feel so bad about this, or this is not the end of the stories. But there's a fine line between providing hope and to help someone move forward and then to minimize what they're experiencing. So I think there's a way that you can do both. You can say, this is really hard. This is something that you didn't expect. This is something that may be affecting you in really big ways. And it may be something that continues to affect you for a really long time. But I also know that you will heal from this and you'll be able to move forward. So I know I'm coming from more a psychological perspective. And so some providers are not going to be sort of taking that coming from that perspective, it's going to be more of a medical perspective. But I I never think it's a bad thing to meet a person wherever they are. If someone is asking you, well, does this mean I can get pregnant again? Or does this mean that my next one is going to end like this? They're specifically asking you for that feedback. And that's a great time for you to say, no, this actually shows that this is a positive in terms of you being able to conceive. So different circumstances where maybe saying something like that actually might be helpful. But again, it's something where you just want to sort of listen more than you want to talk sometimes in these circumstances. That's what I'll tell people. I'll say, ask questions more than you give information until you know what the person is needing, let them lead the way. Yeah. And my next question is, we mentioned resources or online support groups or even in-person support groups that patients Mm -hmm. might seek if they experience a miscarriage. Could you give our providers just kind of a general place where they might be able to find some of those resources? Yeah. Resolve is a really good option for specifically for infertility. But the honest truth is, is most people who are going through infertility, I mean, that's considered a perinatal loss. And often those are women who have also had miscarriages. And in addition to infertility and maybe fertility treatment failures, they've probably also had miscarriages and other things like that as well. So Resolve runs a support group program. And there's ones, I'm trying to think, there's multiple across our state. I think there's six or seven across the state of Iowa. So there's one in the Iowa City, Coralville area. I don't have my paper in front of me, but you can find them on the Resolve website, put in Iowa and it'll pop up with all the groups. There's, I think, two of them in the Des Moines area, a couple in the Quad Cities area, I think. So more of the major areas across the state, but those are really, really good peer-led support groups for women. So it's going to be a different perspective. It's going to be supportive. It's going to be really caring. And it's going to be a situation where some of those feelings are really normalized because you're talking with other women who have experienced similar things. So that would be a great support option to provide to patients. There have been support groups in the past specifically for perinatal loss. One of my friends who runs a clinic in Hiawatha, Iowa, she had a couple of support groups going. They're not running right now, but one was specifically for early pregnancy loss. So anything up to 20 weeks gestation, so considered a miscarriage. And then the second one was anything from 20 weeks on considered more stillbirth. And so those were running for a while. They're not running right now, but those are sort of some options that were there out there before. But those are some of the main ones I can think of. I definitely think Resolve is a great place to look for that. Postpartum Support International is also a great organization. We're developing an affiliate chapter here in Iowa, and I'm one of the board members for that. 
And my friend I just mentioned in Hiawatha also is she's the president of the chapter. So we're just getting that off the ground. So Postpartum Support International, so it's PSI, but it's a great website to go to also for great resources related to anything and everything pregnancy and postpartum related. And there's going to be great resources there related to loss as well. So you've definitely hit on this in the podcast already, but we have found that in addition to providers listening to our podcast, that we also have a growing number of women who are listening to this podcast. And so I'm sure our listeners have or know someone who has experienced a miscarriage or perinatal loss or are struggling with infertility. And I'm just curious, as a friend, how can we support those who are experiencing infertility and or perinatal loss? Yeah, I think that when someone experiences a loss, really one of the most important things that they need is support from their friends and family. And it can be difficult for friends and family who don't know what to say or what to do. And even friends and family who've experienced their own losses, it may have been a very different set of circumstances felt very differently to them. So I think one thing that comes up when I meet with patients and they talk about their friends and family is this thought that people don't know what to say, so they say nothing, or they don't know what to say, so they go away and they don't call me or they don't talk to me or they avoid talking about the baby or family planning or that sort of stuff. Under some circumstances, I know infertility can be a little bit different because sometimes people sort of want to keep that to themselves. Like a couple or an individual might sort of want to just let you know when things look good and not when things look bad. So it might be slightly different between infertility and a pregnancy loss and how friends and family might react So maybe I'll look at those a little bit differently. I I think with infertility, definitely let your friend or the family member who is dealing with that be your guide. But I don't ever think it's ever going to be an issue to sort of say, how are you doing? That is enough of a door that can be opened that the person can say, I'm doing fine and not necessarily talk about it or we're still working on trying to have a baby. So they can sort of take it and use it how they want. So, but to not avoid talking about that, I had someone I met with the other day and she's experiencing infertility. And she said that one of her good friends is pregnant and she herself admitted to sort of avoiding that friend a little bit. And she felt bad because she wasn't showing all the love and joy that she normally would have because she was experiencing her own difficulties with her recent infertility issues. And so we talked about how she could go to that friend and say, Hey, I know things have been different between us lately, and I want to explain why, and I don't want you to avoid me or talking about this. I want, you know, to get back to a little bit closer to where we were before. So, and I think similar things are going to be important when you have a friend or family member dealing with perinatal loss, but even more so not avoiding that person or avoiding talking about it. Very, very often people experiencing a loss do want to talk more about it or don't want to forget it. So when people avoid them or avoid talking about it, it feels very hurtful. And don't be afraid about making a mistake. Most people, you'll be able to correct any mistakes that you might make just by asking, what is it I could do for you? Or what is it you might need? That's so much better than deciding, oh, you must need this, or this must be how you're feeling. That's not very validating in the end. So I say to friends and family, just say, is there anything I can do? How are you feeling? Could I do this for you? Or do you have any needs that I could meet? That's going to be a whole lot better than doing nothing at all or making an assumption. Yeah, I like that. And you said that earlier about checking in with them. I think a lot of the times, I personally, and I know other people I've spoken with, you don't want to bring it up. You're afraid that Mm -hmm. it'll just, yeah, open, you know, maybe we're trying to suppress their emotions a bit, and then you'll cause the person to be upset. And so I think that's very validating that it's okay to bring that up and, and, Mm -hmm. and almost preferred. And conversely, you talked about too, how we can be really quick to silver line or try and find hope or cheer the person up. So I, Mm -hmm. I like the just making space instead of the trying to cheer them up in ways that you're right. Don't validate their feelings. Right. Yep. 
I know that this is really rabbit holy. <laughs> okay, so in relation to talking about infertility and perinatal loss, you had actually also mentioned this earlier in the recording, talking about when fetuses are diagnosed with any sort of anomaly or threatening situation. And I'm just curious, in light of all this conversation, and really, I guess I'd be interested in knowing the provider and as the friend, how do you talk about that? Yeah, so those are really some of the very most difficult, challenging situations and circumstances that patients can ever deal with when you're trying to have a a baby. And sometimes it's just, it's so heartbreaking, especially when someone has tried for so long to have a child, maybe gone through lots of treatments and stuff, and then there's a diagnosis. Not that it's any less when you haven't gone through those treatments or done those things to have a baby, but it's just so, so difficult, not only, I mean, definitely for the patient and partner, if there is one, most of all, but also for the providers and friends and family, because it's hard to know what to think or what to do in those circumstances to support the person who's going through that. My belief is it's really important not to make any assumptions about how people feel under those circumstances and what their choices are going to be. And it's already a really, really difficult circumstance. And to have that compounded by what providers think the patient should do or family and friends think the patient should do or feel, that just adds a much greater burden onto that patient who's trying to deal with that situation and make really, really difficult choices. So I see women and I see couples who will choose to continue a pregnancy when it appears that that baby will not make it to term or perhaps not make it very long after being born. And then I see people who will choose to terminate that pregnancy knowing that it probably will not end well or they're not sure if it will end well. So you really will see a very diverse array of responses and decision-making along that way. And it's a very private and difficult course as well. I've had, for the most part, really good feedback from patients who have been in those circumstances regarding their providers and how compassionate their providers were and how unbiased they were in providing information and in making suggestions or offering options to them. Very, very, very rarely are there situations where a woman or a couple might say, we felt that we were pushed in one direction or the other a little bit more. Very rarely, but that's something to to guard against. It can be, even when we think we're not giving an opinion, we often are giving an opinion. So you have to be very careful to be neutral and to offer an array of options and let the person tell you what they're thinking about those. Because you'll just see people might say, well, I would never do that. But then again, how many of us are under those exact same circumstances that we would know what it would feel like to be in that situation. So in friends and family, it's the same thing. We might say, well, gosh, I wouldn't do that because that doesn't match my moral beliefs or my religious beliefs or just what I think about parenting or whatever. But again, we can't make the assumption that we know what it feels like to be in that person's shoes. To be truly empathic, we have to think what that would be like to be them and what they're going through, which is one of the most difficult things ever to do. So what the best thing to do is to kind of stand back and say, as a friend or a family member, what do you need from me? And whatever choice or decision you make in this circumstance, I support that and I'll be here for you no matter what. So when people come and I ask, have you told your family or friends and what have they said? Those are the best results. When people tell me, they said, whatever you guys decide to do, we're here for you. And we know that you're making a very difficult decision and we'll do whatever we can to help you and support that decision. So, and providers, the same thing. Providers say, whatever you decide to do, that's what we're going to support. So super hard stuff. Definitely. I I like that. Really, I feel like a lot of your answers just kind of center around giving space giving people the space, Mm -hmm. bringing it up and then giving them the space to discuss and then really just supporting what they're talking about. I like this. Right. Yeah. I thought that was good. How you, the outcomes of that, I guess infertility would be similar to some people have a moral objection to IVF, but I I feel Mm -hmm. like for the most part, that's becoming more normalized, whereas still a lot of debate 
about abortion and terminations and when that uh-huh. is appropriate or when it is not. And But we won't go down that <laughs> no, big rabbit hole. <laughs> you know, it comes up sometimes with the single women who have more of a I don't know. It's sometimes the women themselves when they come in to see me. And sometimes it's with family and friends who think that there's something wrong with Mm. having a one parent household, you know, and so I'll do a lot of work with them kind of saying, what is it that you think you can't give? What is it that's going to be missing? What do your family members think won't be there? It's it's amazing. That comes up frequently, like that judgment Mm -hmm. kind of stuff often in that circumstance, which to me is surprising but it shouldn't Mm -hmm. be. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that is true too. I I think personally, I I think the single parent needs some support. (laughs) Just maybe the cultural norm of a child should have a mom and a dad. And and obviously that's still very ingrained in our society. Yeah. So yeah, I I didn't. I I didn't even think about that, but that is so true. Especially think of a single mom getting pregnant on accident. So people who are planning mm-hmm. and seeking treatment for that. Yeah. Coming to terms with. So yeah, that's a good point. So we always ask our guests, what are the most important communication tips for our listeners? So you've listed a lot along the way, but for you, what would you recommend for providers when communicating with patients about infertility and perinatal loss? Well, first of all, just directly asking, like we've said previously, directly asking about the losses or the experiences and just really listening to the way the woman describes it and picking up on the clues as to what she might need from you. Because again, it's going to be really different from person to person. We can't make an assumption that the last person and this person will be similar in what they might need. Another important tip is just to really normalize some of the difficult emotions. And often these emotions don't really make sense or they're conflicting. Like, I feel really happy for my friend who's having a baby, but really sad for myself at the same time. How can those go together? And just saying a lot of emotions, they'll be mixed and don't go together. And it's okay to have those two different things going on at the same time. In terms of grief, I mean, really, again, describing the fact that there's no right or wrong. Grief is very, very individual. And I mean, there's certain theories out there that you go through different stages of grief and it looks like this and this is the timeline. And if it goes longer than that, we pathologize it. But I'll often tell people that the grief that you're going through, whether this was a pregnancy that it was just in your dreams or it was a baby that actually was born or a child, this is something that will probably change the rest of your life. It will hopefully not be as intense and as painful as time goes by, but it probably will be something that you don't ever really completely forget, or maybe you shouldn't aspire to forget. So just really letting people know that grief looks very different from person to person, and there's not an appropriate way to feel it or to experience it. And then really providers, if suggesting resources because we can't always know all the answers. We can't always provide all the empathy. We can't always have the best way of helping someone deal with it, their situation. So being able to provide resources. So sometimes people coming to see me decide that coming to individual therapy is not that helpful. So maybe going to a support group might be Or maybe just reading a really good book or talking to friends and family or going to a website that helps them understand what they're experiencing. So suggesting lots of different resources and letting that individual pick and choose and see which ones help them the most. And speaking of resources, where can providers go to learn more or get more training on how to talk to patients about infertility, miscarriage or perinatal loss? Well, I definitely would like to recommend a couple of books that I've found really, really helpful. For infertility issues, there's a great book and people in the field call it the Bible Bible for infertility counseling. It's called Infertility Counseling, a Comprehensive Handbook for Clinicians. And it's written by Sharon Covington and Linda Burns, and they are just fantastic. They've edited it, and it's I think it's in its second edition now. It's a wonderful book that goes through every 
imaginable issue and concern and helps clinicians, particularly counselors and mental health care providers. But it would be helpful as well to any physicians as well, just to learn about how to talk with people about infertility and how to support them. And then there's another really good book. And this one is more geared toward, it also looks at infertility, but it also has parts in it of dealing with miscarriage and neonatal loss. And so it is called Coping with Infertility miscarriage and neonatal loss. And it says the subtitle is finding perspective and creating meaning, which I think is wonderful. And that one is by Amy Wenzel. That's W-E-N-Z-E-L. So she's a psychologist. So it's a really nice book that incorporates not only infertility, but also miscarriage and other perinatal losses and helps providers to understand. And it probably would be something that could be recommended to patients as well. So, but anyway, those are a couple that I definitely recommend. Perfect. Thank you. And just to our listeners, we put those references and resources on our show notes so you can access them there if you are a patron. Nicole and I would both like to thank you so much for your time and your commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health care through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you would like to add before we end today, Stacey? Sure. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for inviting me to do this. It's been really super great. Really enjoyed it. And I've really enjoyed talking with both of you. And just a final kind of summary in terms of what we've been discussing today. I just really feel that as providers working in this field, we really are presented with these awesome opportunities to open the door to discussion of these really difficult, but yet really common experiences that our patients will go through. And it's a really important opportunity to just normalize some of those feelings and really support the healing process. And in doing so, in supporting this healing, we can create hope then that those patients can move forward. And I think that's really what keeps me going. You asked me earlier, like on it can be challenging and really heavy stuff. And just knowing that I have this opportunity to be a listener and be a supporter and be someone who helps a person go where they want to go, move forward and not forget, but live the life they want to live, hopefully. And I can be a small piece in that goal. Helping them to reach that goal is awesome. And it's the best part of my work. Awesome. Well, we've really enjoyed talking with you. That's for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on today. Oh yeah. You're welcome. I loved it. (laughs) And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. 